0: What is racial profiling and is it wrong? And what is the relationship between Christians and government, specifically when it comes to civil disobedience? This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 11. Okay, I want to dive right in today. Uh, welcome, here's the first question. Quote, I don't consider myself racist, but I have often thought maybe... I am okay with, quote, profiling, end quote. Um, Continuing to quote the question, you will know them by their fruit, but it seems to be in James chapter two, it would encourage not profiling. Should our justice system not use profiling? Should we as Christians avoid it? Okay, awesome. Thanks for sharing. Great question. Uh, Defining terms is Often important, especially when we're talking about something like profiling, what does that mean? You ask, uh, you say you don't consider yourself racist. I believe in episode five, we had a couple of definitions for racism. Um, I think racism is very clearly wrong, but it's important that we know what we're defining because if we say racism is uh, believing that public schools should. You, like, uh, private schools should be abolished. Well, then being racist isn't bad. But, like, so what does it mean? Okay, here's two aspects of, of racism. A strong form would be uh, a, a specific malicious hatred that considers a group of persons inferior in dignity or value based on their phenotypical traits, primarily skin color, maybe things having to a skull size or nose width whatever uh white supremacy mm, some flavors of white nationalism black Hebrew israelites these are examples right uh, but there there is a softer form that i think is clearly wrong but also clearly not that and i do like to differentiate but but there is a kind of racism that's just a uh, a prejudice that makes unfounded assumptions about someone's character, their thinking, or their behavior simply because of their race. Um, Assuming someone is or isn't educated or criminal or friendly or anything else simply because of their race, And I think as I noted in episode five, this would clearly include also assuming who someone will vote for simply because of their race. Um, Now now in James, mm, let's define profiling before we jump into James chapter two, which you brought up in your question. What is profiling? Um, Well, if profiling is making assumptions about a person's character, thinking, or behavior, based solely on some trait like race, Uh, and by by race, I mean the modern notion, kind of like a phenotypical expression, the amount of melanin in your your skin, Um, or possibly some other things. When you make assumptions about somebody's person, their character, their thinking, their behavior based just on attributes like that, that's wrong. It's not loving the person well. Uh, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, as believers. We want to uh, love the men and women around us. And to walk around making uh, prejudging people simply because of the color of their skin is, uh, that's just not loving. I it, Hey, if you can explain to me how there might be a scenario where that's loving, I'm o- maybe okay with that. But generally speaking, that that seems not at all loving. It seems reactive and uh, un, unthoughtful, inconsiderate. It's just at best, it's it's not loving people well, um, and it could be downright uh, just horrifically prejudicial and out of kind of like a bitterness and insecurity. Who knows what? But the point is, if that's what profiling is, it's wrong. But but here's another potential definition. And by the way, sometimes when people say racial profiling, that's what they mean: treating people differently simply because of the color of their skin. But I would say that there could be a profiling that looks pretty similar, but might actually be a little bit more complex, nuanced, and also at times may be appropriate. Uh, Another definition from profiling could be using statistical analysis to inform initial awarenesses cautions, paths of inquiry or investigation. That might just be logical. For example, speaking of crime, there is actually an FBI like criminal profiling division, or at least there has been historically. And if you ever ever watched cop shows, which are super fun to watch, and I'm talking about like uh, CSI or Law & Order or or things like that, at some point you're probably going to come along to some sort of crime that they're investigating, and they talk about the unsub. The unsub is the unidentified subject, the perp, the perpetrator, the, the, the guilty person they're looking for. And what they'll do is they'll actually try to, and this became a, a psychological, like a, literally a science in the 1960s, I believe. There's a there's a show on Netflix called Mind Hunter. It's, it's a little demented. I'm not recommending... It, I did watch several episodes and I enjoyed it. I found it really interesting, but it's about uh, psychologically analyzing like serial killers. And it's just, it's, it's very troubling in ways, but it's also fascinating just to, to think about how the human mind works and how uh, events in life can set us on trajectories. And it's just, it's really, it, it's definitely interesting and it's a real thing. It's based on a true story. In the 1960s, there were real psychologists doing hard work. And what what was amazing was most people doubted, but what they were able to do is go to crime scenes, look at the crime scene. Was the, was the unsub, was the perpetrator gentle or rough with corpses? Did Was there any like forced entry? If there's no forced entry, probably it's the, the unsub is someone the victim knew, right? Uh, but of course, here's the thing. These are making statistical pictures about who this person is, primarily leaning into the psychological characteristics. But that would they would be like, hey, the perpetrator in this instance is a 30 year old uh, single white male who uh, didn't have a father in his teens who probably dropped out of college. Like, it, it's it's interesting. They'll, they'll come up with these, like, scenarios. You're like, how did they know that? And, and obviously in TV, it's probably a little bit dramatized and, and Hollywoodized, whatever. But there really is a, a, a field that studies things like this. And what it's doing is it's just bringing to bear lots of statistical analyses. As we look at populations of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people at this point, And we're collecting data and we see, for for example, if I say somebody uh, died in a drive by shooting, who's the unsub? Probably you think drive by shooting, okay, these happen in cities, these happen in gang violence, probably it's something drug related, most likely it's somebody from the city, it's gonna be a Mm, probably late 20s black male who's involved with, it's kind of somebody low on the totem pole for a drug gang, right? Like, that's just a good guess. Now, it would be inappropriate to now assume that every person that fits this description is the perpetrator, or it would be even inappropriate to assume this description is correct uh, for two reasons. One is it's not loving the people if you're assuming they're guilty. It's not loving them well. Secondly, it actually might lead to not solving the crime. Because what if it, for example, if there's no forced entry, probably the victim knew the perp. This doesn't mean we should assume that everyone who knew the victim is the perp. That would be, again, unloving. And it also doesn't mean we should assume we're correct. What if the perp is just like tremendously charismatic, kind of like a great salesman, and somehow got the victim to open the door and invite them in without any need for forced entry. It could happen, right? Like, uh, sorry if I'm getting too detailed into freaky crime things, but like you get the gist. It's, It's when you assume something about a particular person that's bad, but like the general awareness of statistics, say you hear about a school shooting. Who is it? It's probably a white teenager who isn't close to their father, right? Like now to assume that, to assume that every white teenager who's not close to their father is a school shooter would not be loving that's that's inappropriate that that's wrong it's racist really at some level it's it's racist it's teenagerist it's it's whatever but to realize that this this a, a person with this description is statistically most likely to commit a school shooting that's just using your brain and so it is a little bit tricky, and and so so we apply it to to situations. Like for example, for me, I just talked about the the drive-by shooting a moment ago. And typically, in a situation like that, not only does the unsub fit a particular description, but usually the sub the the uh, victim does too. But in my life, I only know one person who's died from a drive-by shooting, and they were white, right? Like so, like things don't always fit into the statistical most likely picture. So again, making assumptions about particular persons, that's not loving well, but it also only makes sense. It's part of how you solve crimes is you make, uh, you, you come up with descriptions about the unsub and you figure out, you, you connect dots and that helps you guide your investigation. Maybe uh, say you're walking down the street. Uh, let's see. No, several years ago. It was a cold late fall day in the North country. I was walking around town in Potsdam, New York. It was super chilly. I happened to have a hoodie on. So I had the hood up and I walked into a bank to, uh, just, I can't remember what I was doing. Just some simple banking, maybe a deposit or something. And it didn't, I didn't even think about the fact that I still had my hood on. And, uh, very quickly, someone pretty sternly was like, Hey, take your hood off, please. And, uh, I don't think they said, please, it was there was definitely a little rude and gruff. But I realized very quickly, like, yeah, like if with my hood down a they can't see me as well. I'm not on camera. B, I'm kind of walking into a statistical, this is the kind of person they're on the lookout for somebody with a hood up in a bank, right? Like bank robbers high probability of the person that the hooded now if they assumed i was a bank robber and like pulled a gun on me and called the cops and stuff that'd be inappropriate but it makes sense for them to notice me and ask me to remove my hood like uh, was i profiled in that instance in a way but i don't think they were unloving towards me okay so let's move this to racial profiling because that's part of what your question was what about uh what about tsa airport's if they stop and frisk uh, conspicuously Muslim passengers more than others, right? Like, so we're all familiar with the jihadis who committed some massive terrorist attacks September 11th, 2001. I think they're mostly from Saudi Arabia, but I think a, a couple are from other countries. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a Muslim, Islamic extremist, extremist terror, and so there was this sense, I think, among some people, like, like every ext- like person that looks Muslim, they're the next terrorist. And that's not loving people well. And actually, pretty quickly, that's not even using statistics well. And that's one of the things that, that I think is important to note here, is if, if statistically, like 10% of conspicuously Muslim persons were terrorists... I'd say, yeah, that should, again, assuming anyone is a terrorist would not be loving them well, but that should inform heightened awareness and caution regarding, and it would make sense, I think, to almost have a a, a heightened standard for protocol. The thing is this, that, that is not even close to the t- statistic. Think about Islamic extremists extremist terrorist events at airports or in airplanes over the past 10 years. Can you name one? Give me a second. I am thinking. Off the top of the head, my head, specifically thinking about American incidents, I'm thinking about uh, the shooter in SoCal, the shooter in Florida, maybe isn't like an Orlando bar. I'm thinking about the Boston Marathon bombing. I'm thinking about, I feel like there's a, a some bombings in the New York City metro area in New Jersey a few years ago. Islamic terrorists. Uh, there were a couple of Islamic terrorists. There was at least one, a shooting in Pensacola, Florida at the Navy base, I believe. Okay, I just thought of like off the top of my head the past, several years of Islamic terrorist attacks in the United States. None of them were on like commercial airline flights. In fact, I don't think there have been any since the foiled underwear bomber, possibly. And then prior to that, 9-11. I think globally, there were a couple of attacks. There was an attack at the Istanbul airport sometime in the past, like five-ish years ago. Maybe an attack on an airport in Belgium sometime in the past 10 years. Anyhow, I'm sure if you Googled, you could find a couple other incidents. Do you have any clue how many commercial airline flights there are every year? You think one million? That's a lot of flights. I mean, some flights have a few hundred people on them. Okay. Take a moment and guess. You think plus or minus one million. Uh, Number of commercial airline flights in the world i'm googling this right now i'm going to guess it's going to be like 20 or 30 million people boom it looks like according to statista.com somewhere in the neighborhood of approaching 40 million flights a year although this year (laughs) pre-covid there were 40.3 million scheduled but post-covid it's 23 million so uh, airline flights have dramatically decreased. But my point is this, we are talking about we are talking about tens of millions of flights a year. And in the past 20 years, globally, I can think of like two commercial airport bombings and then 9/11. Um those are scary, those are horrific incidents. Those are great acts of sin and something for us to remember and be careful about. I'm not opposed to airport and airline safety, but the idea that there's any statistical reason to treat any particular like religious or ethnic category uh, with a uh, heightened awareness or anything it makes absolutely no statistical sense and so somebody who is in favor of that kind of profiling for airport security I would have to ask them are you profiling because you're using statistical analysis to make informed uh, awarenesses and cautions or are you just racist uh, and and so like I do think some, a lot of racial profiling probably is racist because it's really not informed by statistical analysis. It's just formed by fears of others and assumptions about people. And that's horrific. Uh, The reason why I wanted to wade into this is because I do think that there is value in statistical analysis. Uh, But it is wrong to to make judgments about people simply because of the color of their skin. But if there's some sort of statistical analysis that would mean heightened awareness or caution... I'm all for using stats. Uh, Math is not racist. Maybe some people say it is, but it's just thinking well. Um, Again, for example, if there's a school shooting, probably a male. By the way, if there was a crime, I'd bet money. If there's a violent crime, I'd bet big money the perp is a male. And occasionally I lose, but almost always I'd win. Am I being sexist? No, I'm following the numbers. right? Like that's just that's, that's, that's just using good statistical analysis. That's what smart gamblers do. I'm not advocating gambling right now. I'm making a point about statistics. Okay, so your question though, asks about this and, and then it, you, you reference James chapter 2, which is a great observation because James 2 talks about showing favor favoritism. James 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. So I think this is a really significant passage. I'm not sure if it necessarily influences what I would think of as maybe a, a useful statistical analysis when it comes to things like security and basic policing. Um, again, when it comes to security and basic policing, any sort of assumption about people wholly inappropriate, but the idea of making statistically informed, uh, uh, oh, having statistically informed awarenesses and cautions, that is just utterly common sense, like, it's just common sense. Um, but here in James 2, it's really not talking about common sense, it is talking about uh well, specifically, it's it's talking about this, the tendency in us to be uh, infatuated with, and and maybe uh, it shows a little bit of our, are even hoping to somehow be friends with somebody who's famous, or uh, if somebody comes into the church who's rich, like oh man, this might be mean money for the church, uh, like just that love for money and that that human tendency to to heap he praise and adoration on people simply because they're funding and then to treat people poorly and casually and unlovingly because they're not rich. And so really the question is here, are they loving both of these people equally? And and the answer is clearly no. They are loving more the person with money cuz they're hoping to get something out of it. And so it is it's there's a selfish There's a selfish motive to the way they're treating people. They're treating one uh, uh, unequally to the other simply because they're being unloving, and uh, there's a love of money that's happening. So I think it is it is certainly wrong to have that kind of prejudice or favoritism. But I don't think this is really like profiling and like okay. So say somebody say somebody super wealthy comes in. And somebody comes in who's not super wealthy. You might, uh, when striking up conversation with both people, and, and hopefully, yeah, you're eager to love both and serve both well. But in doing so, you might actually kind of have different initial conversation approaches. Uh, if, if somebody walks in and, uh, you know, they they just got out of a Tesla and they're wearing a $40,000 Rolex, uh Maybe I'll ask them, you know, where they got the watch or or what they think about the car or or if what what they think about you know the the SpaceX launch that just happened in the past couple of weeks. and i'm I'm not asking that because I feel like, oh, this person must be smarter than the other person. I just know kind of like th- there's some cues about their world that I'm seeing. And I'm trying to make it an educated, uh, best approach to just have a good, meaningful conversation with the person and try to find some sort of common ground, thing that we both know something about. And if the person is driving a Tesla, there's a really good chance. Again, I'm just using statistics. Good chance that they're familiar with Elon Musk and SpaceX. Whereas if a person comes in and it, like, you know, it looks like they just came in. From milking cows. I love them the same. There's no sort of judgment, but I'm going to do some statistical analysis and maybe be like, hey, what you've been up to today? And like talk to them about that and talk about. Uh, I've, I've been on a few farms. I don't know much though. So I might ask a question like, hey, like educate me a bit. I'm not going to assume that they just came off a farm, but I'm going to think maybe there is. So I'd ask them, what have you been up to today? And or who, who knows what? Like uh, it's hard to envision these scenarios precisely. But my point is, it is not inappropriate to use some statistical analysis to maybe tweak your conversation, your initial conversation direction between this Person that comes into the meeting, according to James 2, wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and the way you would approach the person dressed in filthy clothes—it would be inappropriate to love one more than the other and to to show a favoritism just because you are, because it's easier for you, or you're uh, you're greedy or infatuated with the money, like whatever the reason is. The point is, love both well. They're both people try to find them both comfortable seats to sit in. Don't just prefer the person who's wealthy because they're wealthy. Give them the comfier chair. Like that's just, that's not loving them both well. So that's really what James is getting at. I don't think it has to do with profiling in in any sense of like racial profiling and potentially using like that for something like TSA security or for law enforcement. Um, By the way, I I do think it's really easy for law enforcement to move from making a statistically well-founded uh, added awareness or caution into making assumptions about someone. Uh, for example, when I was probably like sixteen or seventeen, I was uh, I was with just a friend and we were like. I don't know, horsing around in, a, in an alley in a, in a village. And I started trying to like climb up the side. Of, like there was a building with, it was almost like it was built out of stones. It was relatively modern. It's not like an old stone building, but it had like enough texture that you could kind of almost climb the stones on the side of this building. And in retrospect, yeah, that was probably pretty stupid. It didn't even occur to me in the moment. I was like, I don't know, 16 or 17, right? And the, the thing is this, A police officer uh, was walking by. He was a little bit of a distance away. And he yelled at us uh, and was pretty upset. In fact, in his yelling at us, he said something like, I always tell you, like, or this isn't the first time I've told you to stop that. And, like, I can't remember exactly what he said. He's pretty upset with us. He told us to stop. We promptly stopped. But he's really, like, upset with us, uh, just assuming that we were... Bad kids and like purposefully flouting his instructions. I think maybe he thought we were people he had talked to before. That's the first time I'd ever been in that scenario, and a police officer had ever told me not to climb on the side of the building. Again, looking back, it was stupid, and it was appropriate for him to tell us to stop. But his his uh, harshness and his his anger—he really was angry with us—was uh, based on false assumptions about who we were. And he wasn't loving us well in that moment. I think he was sinning. Um, now I, th- I think we would have been sinning if we didn't promptly comply. Cause I, I do think he was right in his guidance to us. And so we did promptly stop and we left, but, uh, like he made assumptions about who we are. Now, maybe it was just a mistake. Maybe he thought we were John and James and instead we were Jamie and whoever, but, uh, he did make an incorrect assumption and on that assumption got upset with us and that was inappropriate. Uh, and, and so uh, a few years later I was in college, I was literally just walking along the street. I was walking from college to the grocery store to buy some food and a police car pulls over in front of me and then two more cars pull over. Uh, the officer gets out. He's like, hands on the hood, put my hands on the hood, pats me down. I was like, stopped and frisk just for walking in the grocery store. Interrogated for like 20 minutes. It was the weirdest thing. In retrospect, I always want to go back and be like, you have no right to detain me. What's your cause? Like, uh, but in the moment I'm like fairly compliant because I legitimately am never intentionally doing something wrong. But like that situation, I don't think that would've happened if I were 40, but here I was, I was like an 18 year old. Again, I understand an 18 year old male, they commit a large percentage of crimes. So police being a little bit more aware or cautious around an 18 year old totally makes sense. Just assuming I'm up to no good and stopping and frisking me and interrogating me for 20 minutes, that is wholly inappropriate in my opinion. Um, hopefully that makes some sense. Okay, moving on. Next question. This is not a specific question that was submitted to me for the podcast. It's a conversation I've had with a number of people of late. Um, actually, this past Sunday, I want to talk about civil disobedience. I'm a pastor at a local church. Most of you guys know that. This is not part of like my official pastoral ministry. I do the podcast for kicks. Um, but this past Sunday, I was preaching, and, and I really felt like I had a, a just a kind of a download from the Lord. It was a seven-part sermon. Don't necessarily always recommend a seven-parter, but it was a lot of like Bible 101. But one part was about the Christian posture towards government. And I, I talked about our, our default posture. There are a couple of really clear, whether we like it or not, passages in Scripture that inform our general and default posture towards government. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. The passage continues, and if you're unfamiliar, I'd recommend you read it. But in short, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. In 1 Peter chapter 2, there is a uh, similar admonition. Can I find it? Yes. Um, He says, submit, this is 1 Peter 2 verse 13. Submit to every human authority because, the, because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is, it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slave. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God honor the emperor. Okay, again, there's submit to human authorities, honor the emperor. It's a really clear, powerful, sometimes very difficult teaching to Christians. And and just a note in case it doesn't matter, it's simple, it's not always easy, and it's really submission is tested when there's a divergence of wills. If you have a governing authority who every piece of guidance they give, you're like, oh yeah, I agree. I already would have done that. Oh, oh that makes sense. Yep, got it. The, the submission is really tested when there's a, that doesn't make sense to me. I disagree with that. That's inconvenient. That's ineffective in my opinion. That's when submission is tested. But you, you know, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm submitted to the government when... There's no point of divergence of wills. True submission uh, certainly encompasses more than simply when there's a divergence of wills, but it is tested and very... It is exposed, whether there is submission or not, in moments of a divergence of wills. Uh, For the record, I'm a big spirit of the law person. Um, Laws are... uh, complicated, detailed, often lawmakers are trying to make rules for all these scenarios. And I do think it's it's very appropriate to be like, what's the basic point that they're trying to accomplish? And Let me grab a hold of that. But sometimes the spirit of the law is that you follow the letter of the law. That is the case sometimes. And that might be the case for some of us in some of our contexts right now. Just FYI. What I want to talk about right now, though, Is civil disobedience because there definitely are times when believers should disobey the government. I want to look at two clear biblical examples. I'm not going to read the passages, but I'll cite the chapter and book and chapter. In Daniel chapter three, we find a story about uh, Azariah, Hananiah. Oh, I can't remember the other, their Hebrew names. Their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is a golden statue that is erected. Everyone is commanded by the king to bow down and worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are God-fearers, and they refuse. The Lord has called us to have no other gods before him. The Lord alone, the creator of the universe, he alone is the one that we worship as believers. And so they refuse to bow down. And, And that would be a very simple, whenever a human authority, whether it's your parents whether it's your pastor, whether it's your, uh, you know, mayor or governor or president or whomever, when any human authority tells you to do something that is clear sin, you disobey. It's simple. It's actually almost easy. like, even if I'm going to die as a result, which is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were up against, they said, even if he doesn't save us and we die, we are not going to bow and worship. There's a second scenario where it's pretty easy. In Acts chapter 4, and I think again in 5, there's something similar. But in Acts 4, Peter and John, they've been preaching the gospel. The church is growing. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, which was a a civil authority in in Israel in that day. And the Sanhedrin, they beat them. And then they told them, you have to stop preaching this Jesus stuff. And Peter and John basically said, you can decide what you're going to do. But we're going to keep following Jesus and we're going to keep preaching Jesus. And the Holy Spirit filled them with boldness and the church continued to preach. When a civil authority, when any authority, tells us not to do something that we must do to faithfully serve Jesus. We must. Not just like a, this is convenient or helpful or the way I've always done it. But I must do this to faithfully serve Jesus. If an authority says not to, we disobey I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. I'm not going to bow down and worship idols. Done deal. Okay, we have an an added complication, I would say, in the United States. What I just summarized is pretty much straight out of my sermon from Sunday. What I didn't particularly elaborate on has to do with the fact that in the U.S., we have a constitution, and there may be times when someone could... Uh, there could be a law that doesn't call us to sin directly, and it doesn't prohibit us from serving Jesus faithfully, but it's still unconstitutional. And there may, in some situations, it may actually be appropriate and wise to disobey. Uh, It is, uh, that's a tricky situation to to kind of wrestle through, which is why I did not uh, belabor it or try to, I mean, it (laughs) there isn't an easy answer. There's not like an easy, the Bible tells American Christians ABC for when to uh, disobey a law because it's not constitutional. It's tricky. Um, I think we can grab a hold of a couple of biblical principles though that help us here. And the reason the American context is tricky is, as I said, last episode, episode 10, I talked about voting and Christians voting and third-party voting. We have a A very special and beautiful and awesome in ways, but also complicating in ways, relationship with government in America. The Bible says to submit to government and to honor the emperor. And if we had an emperor or a king, uh, I would not like that fact, but it would almost simplify my approach. It would almost simplify my approach because it's hey, if he's not telling us to sin, And if he's not prohibiting us from doing something to faithfully serve Jesus, honor the king, submit to the government. But in America, the constitution is king. We don't have a king. The president is not king. The Congress is not the king. The the Supreme Court is not the king. The king is the, the constitution and the constitution Uh, has invited and and makes opportunity, and really at some level, insofar as it utterly fails without, it demands the participation of the citizens. And so if you are an American citizen, you are, to use poetic language, a co-sovereign. You're like one few hundred millionth of the king of America. You are not the king, but you have like a part of that role and so it does complicate things because if there's a law that isn't calling me explicitly to sin by like bowing down worshiping an idol or not preaching the gospel to keep using those two biblical analogies um, or examples of when we clearly disobey but if there's a law that i just think is bad law if it violates the constitution um it is Generally speaking, by the way, when an American Christian thinks there's a bad law, part of how we are faithful to to embrace the opportunities and resources God has given us and to love our neighbors as ourselves, part of how we do that is we vote, we lobby, we speak, we try to persuade people around us. Like that's part that's the constitutional process. You want to submit to government in America? Well, part of that is engaging in this thing. And like I noted last week, uh, there might be times when a Christian shouldn't vote, but generally speaking, I'd say, yeah, vote, lobby, uh, persuade. Like that's part of embracing this uh, awesome situation that we have. That's part of us being Christians who are submitted to government in America today is to engage in this process. Um, But there might even be moments where civil disobedience makes sense. And let me give an example. And then maybe try to set out a little bit of a standard or like some basic questions, uh, a litmus test to ask before making a decision on disobeying, simply for constitutional reasons. Um, the example would be Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, oh, I should have looked up the date. I couldn't remember Sunday and I still don't know now. Maybe late 50s. Rosa Parks who is down, I think, in Alabama, but somewhere in the southern U.S. where there were segregation laws. These were laws on the books, state laws that prohibited a black American from sitting towards the front of the bus. And Rosa Parks was a black woman, and she sat in the front of the bus bus in civil disobedience. And it was part of a, a multi-year-long civil rights movement that really led to some uh, amazing breakthrough in terms of upending really terrible law that was racist and unloving in itself, but also unconstitutional, violating the 14th Amendment. And so the uh, her civil disobedience... Now, I don't know Rosa Parks, obviously. We're not exactly contemporaries. I haven't studied even enough to, to speculate. So I don't know. Maybe she, she disobeyed with like a ton of bitterness and selfishness in her heart. But maybe she disobeyed thinking... This law is a bad law, it's unconstitutional, and to to serve the community around me, I'm going to break this law, even potentially risking going to jail or or some sort of punishment. And so I think the first step when thinking about, as an American Christian, should I, if the government's calling you to sin or telling you not to do what you must do to serve Jesus faithfully, you disobey. It's pretty much a no-brainer, assuming it's clearly one of those two things. But what about when there's a law that's pretty clearly, it's like, this is unconstitutional. It's not calling me to sin or not follow Jesus faithfully, but there's something wrong here. And I, as American, have, maybe there's there's even a responsibility on me to do something, certainly to lobby or vote or speak, but maybe even to disobey, to, to draw attention to this unconstitutional law. The first question is, what's your motive? If your motive is just, me, my rights, like if that's your motive, I would say that's a bad motive. But if your motive is this is how I want to love God well, I want to love the people around me well, hey, check. Okay, step two. I do think likelihood of success is an important question to consider with something like this. Um, We are Christians. Um, God has given us talents. How will we use them? And, and by the way, when I say talent, in the, in the Bible story where Jesus shares the, the parable of the, the talents, um, there are three servants they are given different amounts of money. A talent is an amount of money. But really, it, it parallels to all the things we have. Part of what we have, you and me, is time. Part of what we have is energy. Part of what we have is our personality strengths, our, our natural talents. Part of what we have is uh, our family backgrounds, our culture, our experiences, the fact we speak English, the the fact like the, we have all these resources and opportunities, like this world of resources and opportunities that Jamie has, that you have. And the question is then, okay, how do I use this faithfully for Jesus? And disobeying a law that maybe you're legitimately correct is unconstitutional. But if there's like no chance that you disobeying is going to actually help change this law or help anybody. I'm not sure that's a good use of those talents, talents of time and energy and potentially ending up in jail or being fined. Like that's just, there's a reason pro-lifers used to chain themselves to abortion clinics. It's because it was uh, possibly saving some babies because it would delay the ability to do abortions that day. And then potentially if there were enough delays over time, you can't just reschedule everybody. Eventually babies are born. Right. And, and so there's this idea that like, Hey, okay, we're all getting like tickets, but maybe we're saving some children. But then the penalties for chaining yourself for, for that disobedience, the penalties increased and it hadn't changed the law. And it's kind of like if we all go chain ourselves to an abortion clinic, we could end up in jail for years, and everybody who is scheduled on abortion that day, let us go the next day. Okay, th- this this doesn't accomplish anything except waste our time and energy, like waste these talents that we have and money, and just like okay, this is not an effective stewarding of what God's given us. And, and so the same thing, like I, I'm I'm not necessarily opposed to civil disobedience for constitutional reasons, but the question is, what's your motive? Is it just about me and my rights and I don't like this? Or is it, uh, I feel like this is an opportunity to love people well and to serve Jesus. And then secondly, is this actually a good use of uh, your your time, your energy, your money? Um, you have to factor in what's the likelihood of success. Uh, if there's no likelihood for success or almost zero, ah, man, really pray and get a lot of counsel on that because I just, I'm not sure that's an effective use of the resource, the talents that God has given you. Uh, but hey, if it's kind of like, dude, I disobey this, some attention's drawn, it'll go to court, instantly a judge, judge is gonna issue an injunction because this law is terrible. Like, yeah, like that could make a lot of sense. Like, I could really bless and help my community by being the person that stands up and just gets this changed ASAP. Okay, the, the third thing I would in, also ask you to consider is for whom am I making this decision? If you are like a 25 year old single person working a bottom of the rung job, not particularly connected to any uh, communities or family members or organizations, like you're totally solo. Well, firstly, I would challenge whether that's a wise way to live life. Jesus has designed us to be people who are in community, connected with our family, connected with our our. Local church, connected with the people at work, connected with our neighbors. Like, it should, we you should be connected. If you're not connected to anybody, you can kind of disregard this question. But again, I would challenge you at that point, why are you not connected to people? Like, we are called to be in community. Assuming you are in community, you have to realize that your decisions impact the people around you. If you're a manager at work and you engage in civil disobedience where you might end up in jail, uh, It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but you need to factor in how am I influencing my company, the people that I'm managing? Like if I just go to, like I have responsibilities now. You, You know, the difference between when you're 10 and you get sick for a week and when you're 20 and you get sick for a week, when you're 10, it's like miserable. When you're 20, it's miserable And now you're like letting people down at work and you're missing out on opportunities and you're taking vacation days. You have to cancel something later in the year. It's just like, oh, my goodness, this is real life. Like this is impacting a lot more than just me. This is impacting schedules and and other people. And uh, it's the same way when you're considering civil disobedience. What's okay? Maybe uh, jail or prison isn't part of it, but maybe there's some sort of social social capital expenditure. Maybe you're going to be headlines and and uh, get a lot of attention you don't like. Again, that doesn't mean you shouldn't. But if you're disobeying, it's kind of like, let's think this through. You know, I was involved in a situation about, uh, it started about two years ago exactly right now, and it lasted for half a year. Um, and it was a legal situation where there's a local law that was illegal. It was in violation of constitutional law. Um, One of the things we did very purposefully in that process is we never, to my knowledge, engaged in civil disobedience. Um, We did make proper appeals. And certainly, we got some backlash. But the backlash was actually mostly not even really related to what we were involved in. Um, And it wasn't because we were engaging in in disobedience. It was just because people didn't like us. And there's not much you can do about that. Uh, you, You can love people and be kind and gracious. And when you represent Jesus and you clearly articulate the truth, uh, that's controversial. But, but, but the point was, we did not engage in civil disobedience, and we could have actually at times. There were moments where we could have engaged in civil disobedience, but thinking, okay, this isn't just Jamie unconnected. This is, in that situation, I was part of a local church thinking, there's a whole community. And when we, if we decide to engage in civil disobedience, we are kind of putting that on everybody in the church. Uh, plus realizing now we're not simply in headlines, uh, because we're making an appeal. We're not simply on Facebook because people hate us because we're Christians. Now it's kind of like we're disobeying the law and and that just adds something. And again, we had a, we had constitutional grounds to disobey, but we decided not to, because even though our motive wasn't particularly selfish, it was, uh, there, there was even a sense of we're making this appeal. On behalf of, there's something about um, speaking against bad laws that's actually helpful for our community. But we were able to speak against it by using the voting, lobbying, speaking making appeals to proper authorities in this case. We, we brought it to court, but not because we had disobeyed anything, but simply we went to court preemptively, just like to appeal, like, hey, this law is, is inappropriate, it's impacting us. Um, but it wasn't just about us. Uh, I do feel like as Americans, there's a place for engaging in the American political process for non-selfish motives. For, we want to serve our community and make sure our communities are free and are thriving. Um, so again, check your motive. Check your likelihood of success, and then think, for whom am I making this decision? Who is this impacting? Uh, If it's just you and you're entirely isolated, you can ignore that question, but I would give you pushback. You should have people in your life that will be impacted by a decision like this. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but consider, who is it impacting? How is it impacting them? Is it worth it? Because the truth is this, maybe you're able to disobey on constitutional grounds. Maybe you're able to but is it the best way to love the people around you? And so that's something to wrestle through. And sometimes the answer will be yes. Sometimes the answer will be no. Uh, I just wanted to kind of elaborate a little bit on the thinking process, maybe for an American Christian who's considering civil disobedience. Uh, Again, there's, there's two easy scenarios. When the government tells you to sin, regardless of what country you're part of, whether you're in Belgium or ancient Rome or uh, modern China under the Chinese Communist Party, like wherever you are, if the government tells you to sin, you disobey. If they 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 prohibit you from faithfully serving Jesus, you disobey. But the American Christian has this added, complex relationship with our government, where at times, maybe it's not calling us to directly sin or directly not to faithfully serve Jesus, but there's this unconstitutional thing and maybe part of how we, generally speaking, the way we engage with laws that are unconstitutional is we vote, we lobby, we speak. Maybe we even file some sort of lawsuit that's an appeal to highlight the, the unjust law. Occasionally, and I think Rosa Parks could be maybe a, a legitimate example of this, we engage in civil disobedience. Uh, but I would challenge the Christian who's considering that. What's your motive? Are you truly doing this to serve Jesus and to serve the people around you? Secondly, what's your likelihood of success? I mean, your motives are good, but are you just wasting opportunities and resources? Or are you actually like spending them well, stewarding wisely the, the gifts God's given you, the opportunities, the relationships God's given you? And thirdly, for whom are you making this decision? Who is this impacting? And again, hopefully it impacts lots of people in ways, but just process through this, is this actually loving everyone well? Uh, if, if, you know, if this doesn't work out, how is it going to impact people? And maybe I'll even refrain from doing something I could do because it's not going to help me reach the people around me. It's not going to help me love my brothers and sisters in Christ well. So hopefully that, like, line of reasoning is helpful, is guiding for you. As always, thanks for listening. If you have any questions to, to consider in the podcast or, or thoughts on either of these subjects or any others, please submit them via text. Go straight to my email labeled for the podcast. The number is 315-566-0056. It's 315-566-0056. Peace.